Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2019 Spring Retreat. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Terry Anderson, the John and Jean Denault Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is Socialism Tried and Failed, Finding a Better Future for American Indians, and was recorded on April 15th, 2019. Uh, being on this stage is always an honor, uh, in particular, and those of you who have attended many Hoover retreats uh, have seen uh, more famous and, and uh, more important leaders than I will ever be, the likes of Condoleezza, George Schultz, soon you'll hear from H.R. McMaster, Jim Mattis, and the list of those goes on. And if you go farther back, and Tom said 1998, so I've been around a few years, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Milton Friedman, Thomas Sowell. But my, my real recollection of a famous person here at Hoover came even before that in 1977. I was a national fellow here at Hoover, young professor, and they sent around, a, this is back before texts and emails, of course, uh, a piece of paper, a memo, uh, inviting the National Fellows to have coffee with a former governor of California and movie star, Ronald Reagan. And I'm like, whoa, this is, this is the pinnacle. And so uh, uh, it really was just this unbelievable experience. And little did I know, of course, at the time, that I was seated, and I, I literally was at his, at his elbow, seated next to the next president of the United States, and the person who I think, in a sense, uh, gets full credit for uh, ending the Cold, Cold War. Uh, and of course, Reagan was, and he had many wonderful things to tell us and, as national fellows at that time, but his, uh, the kinds of speeches he gave and the comments he made uh, are, are always so profound, and, and so uh, uh, he, uh, an appropriate for a, a conversation that starts about socialism at least, uh, Reagan, you know, was, was very careful to, to point out that socialism was not part of his agenda. Uh, and then, of course, his famous speech, uh, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall, uh, those, those words written by our own Peter Robinson. Uh, and then, the, as the wall came down, Francis Fukuyama, who's been on this stage, uh, did his book, The End of History. And it didn't mean the end of people on the earth, as, as, uh, those, of you, those, as those, those who are really concerned about global warming think will be the end of history. Uh, he, was more con he was more focused on the end of history being, uh, meaning that free markets and, and uh, de liberal democracies would triumph over communism and socialism. They would be the end of history and that they would be the final, uh, final form of government that people around the world would choose. And of course, then we started thinking about will China go capitalist and, and how will the Soviet Union after its disintegration uh, be organized and will it become more capitalistic? And I suspect all of us in the room uh, were pretty optimistic about the future of capitalism, but uh, not quite so fast. These are two quotes from the last week in the Wall Street Journal. Socialism is in the air. Socialism is cool again. Uh, not long ago, a Gallup poll uh, examined this question, finding that socialism was favored by 50% of the Democrats uh, compared to 43% who thought uh, capitalism was the way to go. And you can look at the numbers for how it, how it shakes out when you look at young people 
relative to me. Uh, and, the, and it's quite simple that, you know, this is an idea that's, that's caught on again. It's in the air, uh, to use that quote from the Wall Street Journal. And uh, it's alive and well in our country, and that's what I really want to focus on. Uh, socialism is alive and well on American Indian reservations. Jim Watt, a friend and uh, uh, Secretary of Interior for, for President Reagan, uh, was famous for his, his quote uh, ending with, if you want to see an example of the failure of socialism, go to, don't, don't, don't go to Russia, just come to an American Indian reservation. And, and that quote was picked up by Russell Means, who, who was the Native American who started the American Indian Movement. And when he testified before the Senate, he, uh, he again picked up on, on Watt's Jim Watt's quote, and, and then went on to add later, Marxism is as alien to my culture as capitalism. Well, I like the Marxism part being alien to the culture. It certainly was and is, and I'll explain how in a, mo in a moment. Uh, but I don't quite agree with the other part, that it was uh, as alien as uh, capitalism. Indeed, I want to make the case that capitalism was anything but alien to Native American culture prior to contact. So if, if you, I see, I often describe Indian reservations as islands of poverty in a sea of wealth. And if you, if you I, this chart I have here, I first Googled minority incomes over the last 20 years or something like that. And they popped up except that they didn't have the bottom line. It was as if Native Americans didn't exist uh, and, you know, the, the, the statements that, that revolve around data of these sorts are that, that minorities have lower incomes than other people uh, but fail to focus on American Indians. Here is the uh, poverty, family poverty rate, comparing Native Americans and uh, other uh, Americans. And, and, and again, the data doesn't matter how you look at them, how you stack them up. There have been some slight improvements in American Indian incomes over the past couple of decades, but they're still below on every kind of measure. And then if you add the social measures, the, the problems of, of uh, 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 alcoholism, drugs, and, and uh, uh, violence in many cases, it, it, it again does not uh, suggest that socialism on reservations is working very well. And the way the socialism came about is, uh, unfortunately, uh, the result of the words of Chief Justice John Marshall uh, in the 1830s. He, he's always been one of my heroes in, in how he interpreted the Constitution about, you know, the, the notion that we should have freedom of contract, uh, that we should not interfere with interstate commerce, and so on. But in these cases, they're often called the Marshall Trilogy by uh, American Indian lawyers uh, who study federal Indian law. And he described American Indians as being in a state of, uh, they are a state of pupillage. Their relation to the United States resembles that of a ward to its guardian. You think about that and you think, well, it surely isn't that way today, but the bottom line is it's still that. In other words, they aren't complete people. They aren't capable and competent, and I'll come back to those words in a moment, uh, to handle their own lives. Indeed, the Dawes Act was passed in 1877, and it was really this uh, legislation that led me to 
dive into American Indian economies. The Dawes Act uh, tried to privatize reservations in the notion, again, that uh, private property is a good thing. We at Hoover would, would, would agree with that. But, but when the allocations were made, the land was held in trust by the federal government because the Indians might not be competent. And then in 1906, a second act was passed, the Burke Act, and it, and it literally used these words, that the land shall be held in trust until the Indian allottee is competent and capable. Those words stay on the books and are what solidified the notion that Indian resources should be held in trust by the federal government. If you tried to imagine using those words to describe any of those minorities in the previous graph, it's just like, well, we surely wouldn't say that uh, African Americans are not competent or capable and we need to somehow hold resources for them as we might for a, a child or, or a person with some uh, mental disabilities. Uh, and so, that ended up locking the Indian resources into socialism. And socialism simply, as I think about it, simply means ownership by the government and distribution of the productive wealth, if there is some, by the government to the people it deems worthy of that uh, distribution. And uh, at a recent conference, uh, Adam Crapel, a law professor, said, the federal government owns the land. So you look at a reservation, take the Crow Reservation in my home state of Montana, a little over two million acres, but other than a few Indians who manage to be deemed capable and competent, uh, and hence have private property, I have a really good friend, Bill Yellowtail, who has a private ranch on the reservation, it's his, uh, just like uh, your house would be yours. Uh, but other than that, the rest of the land, whether it has individual Indian names on it or has the tribe's uh, name on it, is held in trust because they are wards of the state uh, in keeping with Marshall's uh, trilogy. And that means they can't be sold, they can't be used as collateral, and you think, you know, what do you, if you're an entrepreneur and you don't really have any money and you have this risky uh, venture you'd like to engage in, what might you use for collateral? And the answer is usually your house, or in the case of farmers, the land. And so they go to the implement dealer to buy a tractor or, or put in an irrigation system, and they say, I have some land, I'll put it up as collateral. But you can't do that if you don't own it, if it's held in trust. And so Indians have very little access to capital markets. Even if they have entrepreneurial ideas, and many do, they can't act on them unless the government somehow enters in. Uh, A.J. Not Afraid is another good friend in the Crow Tribe. He's the chairman of the Crow Tribe. And he was here uh, at a workshop we did over in the uh, Lou Henry Hoover building. And, and we were talking about the BIA. And he finally raised his hand. There were a bunch of Hoover scholars around the table. And he said, you know what that stands for, don't you? And, and everybody turned to him, yeah, it stands for Bureau of Indian Affairs. And he said, no, it's, we know what it means. It means bossing Indians around. Uh, he was kind of the color commentator at an otherwise pretty uh, regression-filled uh, uh, conference. And then uh, more recently, uh, at another conference uh, with the Cushata tribe in Louisiana, the former chief, Ernest Stickey, said, we're tired of being wrapped in white tape. And I just, I love that comment. Uh, it really captures, again, how people in Indian country uh, think about uh, their plight. 
Uh, and the legacy of this socialism is, this is a Crow Reservation, a map that the checkerboarding is, is, is if you looked, uh, if you had the legend uh, readable, uh, demarks the uh, pieces of land and the title, whether they're in trust or not in trust. And there, there is a, a, a fair bit of non-trust, private land along the Bighorn River, uh, the blue dots on that map, and most of the rest is held in trust. And as a result, uh, Native Americans just have very little control of their resources. Take the energy resources they have. 30% of all the coal in the United States is in, on Indian reservations. 50% of the oil and gas. Energy resources uh, a couple of years ago were valued at $1.5 million per tribal member. I mean, that's not a bad uh, bank account to have, right? It's not a bad uh, a number to have on your balance sheet. But again, that's if they actually had them on their balance sheet, which they don't because it's held in trust. If you look at the Crow Reservation and, and the former chairman uh, when Obama uh, imposed the war, his war on coal, uh, the former chairman said, your war on coal is a war on my people. And the reason he said that is there's all this wealth tied up in coal on the Crow Reservation, and yet they can't mine it without being subject to the white tape. Uh, they can't mine it without being bossed around by the BIA. And so as a result, the return on that $1.5 million asset that they have is 0.004%. That's not 4%, it's not 0.4, it's 0.004. Let me just give you another example. Uh, 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 back in the, uh, started in Bush 1, a woman named Eloise Cobell filed a lawsuit against the Bureau of Indian Affairs, Department of Interior, saying, you haven't given back to me the revenues that have come off of my trust lands. So let me explain. She has some lands held in trust by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And if you were to lease her land and graze cattle on it, let's say, uh, you would write the check for the lease and send it to Washington, D.C. to the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And then they would get this, and they would send it back to Eloise. And Eloise said, you know, I haven't gotten a check for quite a little while. And a few other Native Americans said, let's join in and they eventually uh, ended up in a class action lawsuit. And that class action lawsuit was for $750 billion. And the BIA, Department of Interior, could not account for it. It was as if, and, and it used to be the way they did this was they would put it in boxes and one of the, one of the reservations, they had an old derelict school bus and they would put the boxes in the school bus. Uh, and that's where it was stored. Well, it got a little more sophisticated. Well, maybe not because it went all the way to Washington and never came back. They ended up settling that lawsuit uh, finally in the Obama administration. So all these administrations were continuing in this struggle to how are we gonna deal with this? And they settled this lawsuit, remember, 750 billion. They settled for 3.1 billion. And it was considered, ah, oh, wow, we won. Well, <laughs> didn't look like much of a victory to me if the, that much was actually lost. And again, I think it just illustrates the legacy of socialism on American Indian reservations. And I have to say, if you don't believe an airhead academic economist, then you might speak to a Native American. And we're lucky to have as my guest here today, Michaela Verstrada. 
uh, Michaela recently did a YouTube and just Google her name uh, and add socialism and I guarantee it'll pop up and lots of other hits. Michaela in this presentation, she's prettier than I am, she's Native American, starts the video out saying if you want essentially what Jim Watts said, if you want to see socialism. And then I love what she added to it. We've already placed, you've already placed us on reservations. Why place the rest of the country on one? And so if we go down this path of socialism, I, I, I see it as being a path that, that will be, make us all <laughs> islands of poverty, except there won't be a sea of wealth. So uh, the, the point of this is some Native Americans are beginning to see that socialism is not the answer. And we saw this uh, recently uh, back in, in, uh, at the end of March, a group of us, some people from the policy ed team you'll see here, Chris, Shauna, uh, we went down to the Cushata Reservation in Louisiana. And we went to a conference called All Roads Lead to Chaco Canyon. Now, if you're not steeped in Indian history, that wouldn't mean anything to you. But Chaco Canyon was a major trading hub. It was kind of a, a world trade center, if you will. A place where Indians from north, south, east, and west came together, and there were literally roads that they built to help facilitate some of this trade, came together and they traded goods. And they traded goods that were made in the Arctic for goods that were made farther south in South America. They traded goods from the west coast, the east coast. It was a vibrant, vibrant trading world. And, and if you, uh, I've not, not been there, but it's on my list for the summer. You go and you see these, these, the, the ruins that are left from, from Chaco Canyon, and you have to say, wow, th these were, this was a big city. It had to be well organized to build these kind of buildings. They had to have a system of governance in place that would allow them to achieve the kind of wealth that they had achieved. Indeed, they had property rights. Uh, near where I live in Bozeman, Montana, a friend of mine discovered a three-mile-long rock wall built by Native Americans to channel buffalo onto a buffalo jump. Now you think of building a three-mile-long rock wall by hand, it took significant coordination. There had to be some return on the capital investment that was made. And part of my research then is focused on just the, what I call the old indigenous economies. What were their institutions? They were not socialists. They were not communists. I hesitate to call them capitalists, uh, partly because in many Native American circles, and Michaela could certainly speak to this, you say capitalism and they're like, oh my gosh, that's not for us. But they had the, the same ideas defining a free society that we at Hoover uh, focus on. So where does all this lead? And, and this is the focus of a project here at Hoover. Uh, uh, and, and, and it provides another path for Native Americans that isn't socialistic. And that other path means secure ownership rights for indigenous people. It means getting it out of the wardship of the federal government into the hands of tribes uh, and individuals who can then manage resources because they are competent and they are capable. Now this has to be on their terms, of course, and, and they need to have self-government. And I, I've added in the parentheses here, optionality. That is, I, I, in the conferences that, that we're doing and the discussions we have, I'm not there saying, let me tell you how to organize your life. In 1934, the Bossing Indians Around group went around to tribes and said, you have to have constitutions. And they took a piece of paper and it started out, we the people. 
you know, these tribes were like, well, what if we're a theocratic government? What if we, we, our leaders were ordained from some ceremony? What does democracy mean for them? Or what if they were autocratic? Some were democratic. Point here is, it needs to be optional and they need, the tribes need to, to determine what the institutions are that will govern those organizations. And that means they have to have fiscal independence, some ability for the tribes to, to create the necessary income for the tribe, to create the infrastructure that's both the legal system, the property rights system, and uh, uh, secure uh, systems for guaranteeing that people who invest on reservations uh, can collect. That other path is, again, defining a free society. Let me give you a couple of, of examples of, of the success stories around the country. Uh, too often, uh, I, I've focused on, you know, look how bad it is on this reservation, look how bad it is there. Uh, I did some research on, on the uh, uh, productivity of the private lands I mentioned on reservations vis-a-vis -vis the trust lands, and, you know, I didn't really have to do the research. You could just drive through any reservation and, and you can say, trust, fee, trust, fee. In fact, as a, a sidebar here, I, I went hunting on the Crow Reservation. They have a, a pretty good bird population, pheasant population. You go there, you have to buy a, 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 a hunting license from the tribe, paid for my license, and they handed my friend and I a map. And they said, you can only hunt on trust lands. If it's fee simple lands, privately owned, you have to have permission from the landowner. So we're driving down the road looking at this map and said, oh, now we can't hunt there. Uh, yeah, we can hunt there. No, we can't. Pretty soon we just threw the map away. We didn't need it. It was perfectly clear. If it was a productive field and there was a tractor and an irrigation system and a barn and a house, you knew it was fee simple. And if it was overgrazed and, and not, again, I don't assert that, that, that they don't know how to run grazing. Uh, if it was overgrazed or just a brush pile, you knew it was trust land and it was okay to hunt. So I didn't need to do the research I did, but got it published and helped me get tenure, and that's all that matters. Uh, 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 so, uh, so I focused a lot on the, on the bad side. But let me tell you a couple of the success stories before I uh, close for some questions. Uh, the Winnebago Reservation in, in Nebraska is an incredible reservation in terms of the, the successes. They have a corporation called the Ho-Chunk Incorporated. It's worth something like $100 million. It employs 355 people. Uh, and and they, they have housing projects. They build hotels on the reservation to attract people. Part of this has come from gaming. I don't want to leave that out as, as one source of wealth. But even if you look at that source, uh, it, it, it illustrates what needs to happen. Gaming comes because the federal government passed the Gaming Act that says to tribes, if you can negotiate a compact with the state, you can have a, 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 a casino. States entered into this, California is a perfect example, and said, yeah, we'll, we'll enter into some compacts. And then the state saw these as pretty lucrative cash cows. And so they've started to say to tribes that are making lots of money, we want a cut. And politicians even go to those reservations and say, support me with some campaign contributions and I'll take care of you. And many states have just said, let's compete with them. Let's open our own casinos. So it's not, it's not a goose that will continue to lay golden eggs. And the Ho-Chunk 
uh, Corporation understands this fully. They are taking the re receipts that they started with and investing those, diversifying outside the reservation, across all aspects of an economy. Uh, they would, those of you who are financial advisors, would love to look at their portfolio because they understand the importance of, of getting outside this socialistic structure uh, and have had a huge effect on the tribal economy. And that success story is, is one that, that, again, only exists because they've escaped from the socialism uh, that I described earlier. Or now to put it in a slightly, give you a couple of other small examples, uh, but, and, and I love what one of the tribal leaders said at one of our workshops. He said, it's time for us to, to focus on revenues, not grants. In other words, we need to have businesses that generate revenue in the same way that the private sector does that we're familiar with and not depend on the federal government to send us another grant so we can have some capital to invest in a, a tractor for the, the farmer. Uh, it, I, again, I know a lot about the crow because it's close to home. Uh, so the federal government comes in and says, you need to build a carpet factory. This is out in the middle of absolute nowhere. The carpet factory was built with a grant and lasted about five years. And if you drive by it today, it's just a derelict building. Uh, it didn't work. They weren't focused on revenues, but the Ho-Chunk are, as are some of the others. I love this uh, statement from the Fort Berthold Reservation in the center of North Dakota, right in, in the midst of the Bakken uh, fracking boom. Uh, they say, we get our sovereignty one barrel at a time. And they are making millions of money. But it took a while for them, again, to get out from that government hand, that socialistic hand that controlled them. Uh, I have a, a wonderful series of, of uh, GIS maps that start with what, what the oil drilling was in the Bakken in, I think, 1950. And there are a few dots showing oil wells, but none of them on the Fort Berthold. And then you fast forward and you get towards the, the fracking boom and there are just dots all around this blank in the middle of North Dakota, the, the, the Fort Berthold. And then they managed, the senator from North Dakota managed to get a special law passed that took them out from under socialism, out from under trusteeship. And all of a sudden this map explodes with wells and they're getting the revenue off of it. Sovereignty one barrel at a time. Or as the Southern Ute leader, uh, and they also are, are capitalizing on their oil and gas resources. They have some of the biggest uh, reserves in the country. Uh, and again, diversifying and diversifying all the time. And I love how, how he puts it, a business model for sovereign nations has to, that has been the federal government, and that's an equation to go broke. And finally, I turn to the Cushada. I mentioned uh, uh, Ernest Sicke and his son David is now the chairman. And look at what they're doing. And, and uh, I, I emailed uh, uh, David Zicke before I put this together. And I said, how much land did you start with? Well, first off, they were disbanded as a reservation, as a recognized federal tribe. So they were just people like the rest of us living in Louisiana. And Ernest Zickey said, we, we ought to reorganize and, and, and save tribal culture, for one thing. And, and so he managed to say to the federal government, we'd like new recognition, not because he wanted to be under the thumb of, of wardship, but he said, you know, we think we can organize our, our tribe and, and do better. And they started with 15 acres. They purchased it, but it had to be held in trust by the federal government. And Ernest said, okay, we'll do that. 
But now they've continued to add, and they now have uh, over 5,000, they have over 7,000 acres, 5,000 of which is outside the reservation, held in fee simple title, and they have crawfish farming, they have soybean farming, they manage that land as if they're competent and capable because they are competent and capable. Uh, so these, are, these are, are tribes that are, are doing it right, escaping from socialism. I'll wrap up uh, first, I can't, can never talk about these issues without this quote from Chief Joseph. Uh, uh, I was telling a couple, of, a couple of the staff wanted to see pictures of my new puppy and we were looking for Civil War generals who start whose name starts with M because our other two dogs were named M. And I found General Miles was one of them. But General Miles is the one who caught Chief Joseph just before he crossed into Canada. And uh, Chief Joseph, has, that ended his trail. Uh, but Chief Joseph later went to Washington, D.C. to give a speech. And he said, let me be a free man and you can read the rest. And I, every time I read that, I get a tingle up my spine. I think, this, is, this, this might have been Tom Gilligan talking. This is, these are the ideas defining a free, free society. And I, I, I have at the top the Chief Joseph Freedom Index. Some of you may be familiar with, with uh, indices that are created by, I won't mention any names because they're not, not associated with Hoover and therefore aren't as good, uh, but ours will be. Uh, uh, they have these international freedom index comparing countries. We want to do that for American Indian reservations. Create an index that shows what the Cushada have, what the Winnebago have, uh, and, 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 and do it honestly, fairly, by incorporating how well do they get themselves out of socialism. And I, this is from uh, Lance Morgan, who is the uh, CEO of Ho-Chunk, Inc. And you know, when I came across this quote, and I've talked to him a few times, but when I came across this ch quote, I just, I just loved it. We've taken control of our destiny, gotten a taste of independence, and don't plan on giving it up. Government-led economies have been a total failure. I refuse to believe the Winnebago's are Karl Marx's last hope. That last line just, just uh, uh, really, <laughs> again, excites me, and excites me because I think it is the future for this minority that's been held in the bonds of socialism. And we at Hoover are part of this, and I ask you to join the Hoover Project in spirit, at, at least. Uh, we have this Hoover Project on renewing indigenous economies. We've held some programs here with tribal leaders, with other scholars. And, and we start with what Hoover's about. We start with research. Uh, many young scholars in the economic profession, some of whom are Native Americans, are beginning to say, how can we understand what socialism has done? How can we understand how the Ho-Chunk have organized their, their corporation? And how can we take those lessons and apply them in other places? Uh, we've held leadership uh, forums for uh, uh, the tribal leaders, and I mentioned uh, A.J. Not Afraid, my, uh, the Croke tribal chairman, uh, and have had several uh, tribal leaders, not just from the U.S., but uh, tribal leaders from Canada, tribal leaders from New Zealand, come together and talk about the, how the ideas defining a free society might actually be incorporated into modern uh, indigenous economies. Uh, the, the policy ed team, I, if you haven't looked at Hoover policy ed, 
do it. In fact, leave now and go do that. It's better than listening to me. The policy ed team is fantastic, and we're producing some videos that illustrate many of these points. And, and the list goes on. As you probably know, Hoover has a wonderful uh, boot camp for uh, young college people. They come into this room, and uh, John Taylor and, and Amy and others uh, uh, speak to them, I uh, get to once in a while. And it's a wonderful program. We want to do the same thing for Native American students. And there are many, there are a couple here on this campus that I've gotten to know uh, who, who really are thirsty for the ideas defining a free society. I think we at Hoover have the ability to take research by airheads like myself and incorporate it in and package it in ways that tribal leaders can understand it. And then they can decide what do they want. Do they want to continue living under socialism or live in modern economies where they can decide how they grow, when they grow, and how that wealth will be distributed amongst their tribal members? We at Hoover, I think, are in an ideal situation to show not how it didn't work in Venezuela, but how it can work in the United States. Thank you. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Podbean, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.